and welcome to another Dairy Dialogue podcast. It's number 170, and not only do the months seem to be passing by more quickly, the podcast seems to come around more than once a week as well. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and it's been a wild week here in the UK, and for that matter in parts of Europe as well, thanks to one storm after another. Usually we ignore the flood watch and weather alert notifications, because a few hours later they get cancelled or they aren't even anywhere near accurate. But this time, there was quite a storm, and lots of flooding and high winds, trees down, and other traffic havoc. We're luckier than many in that there was no power cut. I do remember plenty of those living in a small community in Canada, which wasn't so bad in the summer, but in the winter, heat is kind of useful. Anyway, it looks like we're over the worst of it, and there's even a forecast of no rain on Saturday. I'm sure that will have changed by Friday. Tomorrow, my son hits double figures, and tonight, I'll be trying to make him a cake with lots of different flags on it. More fool me for volunteering. He specifically asked for Nepal because it's a different shape, and some others, but what he will actually get, I have no idea. Anyway, I'll try. I bought lots of different coloured icing to cut the flags out of, and I did feel quite professional buying all the stuff in the store and asking if they sold ribbon cutters so that I can make straight lines for the stripes and the flags. Whether they'll actually be straight is another story entirely, and I don't think I'll be putting a photo of it on social media. Not that I do anyway. Well, I do post articles on social media related to work, but I'm not sure a flag cake counts as work. The global news this week is all pretty depressing, although COVID restrictions are being eased in many places, which is good to see. And yesterday was another landmark day, as it was 22-2-22, or 2-22-22 if you're in the US. So let's get to the details on the podcast this week. It's a four-person, three-interview show this time, because we have conversations with Colleen Truman, VP of Global Food Group, and that conversation is about Seattle America. We also chatted with LactoCore CEO Anton Malishev, and the two-person interview is with Ravi Sheth, Chief Scientific Officer, and Kendall Debagi, CEO and co-founder of Kingdom Supercultures. And we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland from StoneX. That means it's time to see what the biggest news on DairyReporter.com was over the past seven days. There wasn't a lot of news, although we are getting into that time of year when the financials are all coming out, so that's a big help, even though sometimes it means sifting through pages and pages of numbers. As with everything else, flexible packaging costs continue to rise. Arla has been named Sweden's greenest food producer, and Arla Foods Ingredients introduced Origin for formula manufacturers. Abbott issued a recall of some of its powder formula products. Pacor is set to include a minimum 30% RHDPE content in all UK dairy caps. And we had a special edition newsletter on protein and healthy aging products. And that included articles on dairy ingredients for healthy aging, dairy's role in the evolution of active nutrition, and protein for protection. We had the 2021 financials for Nestle, Kerry, and A2 Milk Company, 
and tomorrow it will be Danone and Elopac. Fonterra, NZX and EEX are to partner on the GDT. The Ulster Farmers Union in Northern Ireland is demanding a meeting with dairy processors over milk prices, and Aldi in the UK is digging to discover some new dairy products for its shelves with a contest for producers. You can read all of these and many more at dairyreporter.com. So let's get to this week's interviews, also known as the interesting part of the podcast. And first this week, we are talking about supercultures with kingdom supercultures and how those supercultures can be used to make healthy and sustainable products. To tell us about the company and what it does are Ravi Sheth, the company's chief scientific officer, who you will hear from first, and Kendall Debagi, the CEO and co-founder of the company. I wonder if you could give me a bit of background first then on Kingdom Supercultures? Yeah, definitely. So I guess um, Kingdom is an ingredient supplier that works on supplying natural microbial cultures as a specialty ingredient in a range of food, beverage, and consumer products. What we specialize in is this idea of basically generating custom cultures on demand for very specific applications and driving next generation functionalities. And so as everyone in the dairy industry is very aware, cultures are able to basically take raw inputs, animal substrates, milk, for example, plant substrates, and transform them into something entirely new. And cultures today are a core part of the the dairy industry in terms of being able to make things like cheese or yogurts or a variety of products. But this work has also been very limited in what it can do. Today, you can buy one of a few hundred microorganisms, typically single microorganisms, that really drive production of commodity output, things like cheddar cheese or different types of yogurts. But that's really changing today. Today, consumers want new types of products that may be different, you know, low, low sugar, low carbohydrate yogurts, or even plant-based yogurts. And these are very different kind of fermentation processes and products that the same cultures cannot just be used in the same way that we have previously. And so what we specialize in is basically going through all of the cultures that exist in nature, finding them, intentionally combining them, studying them, and, and generating new cultures that meet exactly kind of the specifications of our customers. We work across a, a pretty broad, broad range of products, but um, do a lot of work in plant-based uh, cultures, in cultures driving novel functionalities from taste, flavor, kind of preservation, texture. Also have a deep focus in biological protection and preservation, really allowing for extended shelf life in products using natural and not chemical modalities. So that's a super brief overview. Obviously, plant-based alternatives have grown over the years. Some of it's still in its infancy, like seafood. It's well-developed for things like beverages, but cheese seems to be in the middle. Cheese has been around for a long time, but we're only just starting to see kind of things other than mozzarella and cheddar varieties. Why do you think that is? I think it's a really hard technical problem to solve. There's a really diverse and special set of flavors that are associated with all the different cheese varieties that we see today. That's like the result of hundreds of years of artisanal like craftsmanship. It's no small feat that we're able to make these really, really incredible tasting uh, and products. And I think we've been able to, as like a, as an industry, go in and recreate or get close. Uh, I would say there's still a big gap, but 
starting to get close to recreating things like cheddar cheeses or mozzarellas. But it's an incredible amount of work to recreate the taste and flavor profiles of some of these other specialty uh, cheese products. That's really what we're focused on is like how you can take that invention process, which previously took people, like I said, like hundreds of years, and really compress that into a much shorter time period, understanding what are the core flavor drivers, how you can get there from the microorganisms that are being used. But yeah, I think the simple answer is, I think it's a really hard problem. Are we getting closer and, and are there things that you're doing to try and address that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one thing that we've been very interested in is closing this gap in terms of taste and flavor in these plant-based products. And the core problem is basically a lot of the flavor molecules and flavor profiles that are signature to many of these specialty cheese products are transformations or conversions from dairy metabolites. And many of these metabolites are not found in plant substrates. And the plant substrates people are using today are very, very different from dairy. For example, they, most of them don't have lactose. They have very different nutritional uh, compositions, very different functionalities. Um, and so at Kingdom, we've been spending a lot of time really going deep in, in terms of trying to understand what are the flavor profiles and fingerprints and metabolites, and then mapping how our microorganisms and cultures can really precisely get us from point A, which is a plant-based, to point B, which is something that tastes, feels, looks like a uh, kind of specialty dairy product. You know, we work with a number of leading customers and uh, manufacturers in this space on kind of problems in plant-based flavors and that general area. The other thing I'd mention is we see it as a two-component problem. So there's this idea of flavor generation, which is really, really important. How do you actually get to dairy-based flavors that recreate what we look and see and taste as some of the core drivers of like a great dairy experience. But also a lot of the plant substrates we use today actually have significant off flavors and bitterness and beaniness and grassiness that limit their application. And so that's another component of like the technology that we're working on is also the ability to remove some of these off flavors and kind of remove these planty flavors. And without getting too technical, can you tell me a little bit about the kind of technology that you use and how you're developing products? Yeah, absolutely. So at Kingdom, we basically have built out a very, very large bank or kind of collection of these microorganisms already found in the food system. We have tens of thousands of them. And we basically have the ability to go through that very large biobank and pull out, understand, characterize individual microorganisms. We've aggregated a tremendous amount of data associated with them from their genome sequence to their the metabolites they can make to their phenotype. This collection basically represents one of the largest collections of foodborne microbial diversity. And importantly, we're optimizing it for not just microorganisms that come from milk, but microorganisms that come from the breath of foods, including a deep focus on kind of plant-based fermentations. The second part of what we do is then really uh, kind of designing these and assembling them in a very intentional way. As you can imagine, there's a very large design space. If you have tens of thousands of things, how do you choose the right three or four to drive taste and flavor and functionality in a product? And so we mine a lot of these data sets we've generated. We use proprietary algorithms and machine learning approaches to basically select the individual microorganisms and products and blends that we work with our partners to commercialize. Fermentation techniques we hear a lot about all the time. 
are they all similar or are those fermentation techniques different and how does yours differ? So there's a lot of companies working in the fermentation space today. Many of them use this precision fermentation or genetic modification approach where they go into single microorganisms and edit their genome to do something new, novel. We fundamentally don't do that at all. So we don't do any genetic modification. Our technology is all based on finding, mixing, and matching natural microbial cultures in an all-natural way. So we think what we're doing is actually quite distinct from a lot of the like newer approaches that are coming out on the market. And we kind of touched on all of the different dairy cheeses before. How can we create more options? And I'm not just thinking about the variety, but also in terms of approaching the quality, taste, texture of the originals. Yeah, I, there's a lot of work that's been done from a chemical standpoint on this, where most of the plant-based cheeses right now, the market standard is really using artificial flavoring packets to try to derive similar like flavors and textures to these like authentic dairy cheeses. And what we believe is that like if the original dairy cheeses are a product primarily of the cultures that are being used and the substrates, that we ought to be able to do the same thing with plant-based cheeses. And so we're looking at this from primarily a microbiological standpoint, which is that this is a culture problem. And that by delivering like new types of cultures that incorporate novel microbes, obviously food safe, food born, they all come from the existing food supply. We're putting them together into new combinations, harnessing ones that haven't been used from other types of foods, that there's an opportunity basically to do that instead of to take a chemical driven approach, which at best is only going to try to recapitulate what originally happened as opposed to generate it de novo, which is what cultures are capable of and why we're focusing on that approach. And I guess one of the biggest issues with plant-based cheese alternatives has often been a huge price differential between plant-based and authentic dairy. Um, how can that gap be bridged? That relates to this whole like ingredient piece where an authentic dairy cheese is really just the milk and cultures. And now all of these plant-based cheeses are some kind of like plant-based substrate, but then you've got all of these like artificial chemicals, flavoring packets, texturizers, et cetera, that are being blended in. And so the ingredient cost becomes very, very large. Instead, if we could design better cultures where we can just use plant bases plus cultures to get to a really authentic plant-based cheese, we think that ultimately will both deliver a superior sensory experience, but also dramatically lower the ingredient costs and allow us to reach price parity with the dairy versions. Is that one of the benefits of your the methods that you're working on? Yeah, I think ultimately the cultures that we're creating will allow people to cut out a lot of these artificial chemicals and ingredients and texturizers and so on and allow them to reduce their overall like ingredient bill. And what kind of timescales are you working on in terms of having products on shelf? Yeah, I think that's one of the real advantages of the work we're doing. And actually one of the real reasons why a lot of our customers really come and enjoy working with Kingdom. From our end, we're able to take in a product brief or like a specific product specification and work with our customers, food manufacturers, to actually deliver these core ingredients and cultures and processes in a very, very quick time frame. And so for us typically to go from an idea to a prototype, we're testing a bench and pilot scale is on the order of three to six months and then a relatively short time period for us to then take that ingredient and deliver it at scale. 
and so that's a very very fast design cycle for especially for in the culture and fermentation space typically to design even like a new culture or culture line could take on the order of many years and so that's something that we think is really important is really the velocity of products obviously the plant-based space specifically is moving incredibly quickly and we've seen such a dramatic shift in what the grocery store looks like or what a shelf aisle looks like and speed and being able to catch up to very quickly changing consumer demands is incredibly important for manufacturers and brands as they compete in this very crowded space. Do you plan on producing any end products or are you just concentrating on ingredients for other people's end products? No, we're just concentrating on the ingredients. I think at the end of the day, there's a really, really exciting opportunity to build a a next generation ingredient company. And we don't want to get distracted making in products. We think it's like a whole skill set and set of complications that are very different from building an ingredient company. So we want to stay focused on delivering really great ingredients that allow other people to focus on the marketing, the advertising, the distribution, all of the different set of issues that come with delivering an end product that are very different than what you would focus on as an ingredient supplier. Is that also driven by your customers coming to you and asking for specific things that kind of divert the way that you would approach things? Yeah, 100%. We want to make sure that all of the supercultures that we work on are really driven by actual demand in the marketplace and real problems. So we don't go and just create supercultures right now. At the moment, what we're creating are custom supercultures that are optimized for the particular bases, the particular processes, and the particular like consumer marketing benefits that the manufacturers we work with want. And then we can design cultures that are optimized for those. And then we deliver those to them on an ongoing basis as an ingredient supplier. And so are your ingredients already in products that are on shelf? Yeah, we're powering a few different things. Most notably, we received a bunch of press for the work that we're doing with 11 Madison Park, one of the world's most renowned restaurants. We're delivering cultures to them that are powering some of their new plant-based menu and a couple of like the most popular pieces of that, like the sunflower butter, the almond creme fraiche. We're also working with Trebucha on a Super B fermented seltzer, which is, it's a culture that allows kombucha manufacturers to create a fermented drink that has living strains very similar to kombucha, but that's actually shelf stable, doesn't have to be refrigerated, doesn't have any sugar and doesn't have any alcohol. And so these are big drawbacks to kombucha where it's perceived as a health beverage, but also does have meaningful amounts of sugar and alcohol. And then from a price and distribution perspective, becomes expensive because you have to refrigerate it along the way. And so what this culture allows people to do is to create like a novel fermented health beverage that yeah doesn't require refrigeration and doesn't deliver any sugar alcohol to the end consumer. Consumers are not only looking for the sustainability piece of things, but they're also looking for it to be healthy, for it to not have a gazillion ingredients so it's changing all the time clearly what you're doing can address those things as well yeah i think the really interesting piece of this is that all of those challenges are interrelated and we think that all of that can actually be solved by figuring out how to design new cultures that will be able to take these plant substrates ferment those into end products that don't require as many ingredients therefore healthier because they don't require as many ingredients will also be cheaper and will actually do a better job of generating like the flavors and textures that people expect because that's how it works with an original cheese is using these cultures to do that work. Yeah, absolutely. Makes sense. It's almost like everybody's been going about it the wrong way in the past. They've just been trying to recreate the end product without thinking of the process. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think it's really only in the last five to 10 years that we've had these advances in the microbiome field that allow us to do that work now, where for, in a very cheap manner, we can go and we can isolate all of these microbes. We can characterize them. We can get their genome sequences. We can understand the types of metabolites they produce. And then we can use cutting edge new approaches in statistical learning and, and machine learning to basically then design these cultures using computation. Because when you think about it, if you have a biobank, as we do, of tens of thousands of strains, and you want to make a community of five of those, to ferment something, there's nearly infinite different combinations of five strains from tens of thousands of starting points. And so you really have to rely on computation to do this work as well. And at the end of the day, the way that we think about this is that we're speeding up the process of discovery of these cultures, that it took our ancestors hundreds or thousands of years serendipitously stumble upon the right combination that would turn a milk into a really compelling yogurt. And then they domesticated that culture, effectively passaged it time after time again to use it to create yogurt. And we're just speeding up that serendipitous process instead of it taking another thousand years to find the right combination that will ferment coconut into a really compelling plant-based yogurt. Why don't we use all of these tools at our disposal from cutting edge modern science to be able to do that work much quicker? I really enjoy those cutting-edge technology interviews. It kind of gives you a glimpse into what the future might look like, as does this next interview, which is about milk-derived peptides, which may have the potential to develop safer and more effective treatments for a range of common psychiatric, metabolic, and cognitive disorders, including diabetes. To tell us more is Anton Malyshev, CEO of the company that's working on developing these milk-derived treatments, and that is Lactocore. All right, so I guess the first question is if you could give me some background on Lactocore. Yep, uh, absolutely. Uh, we started as a Lactocore as a scientific project, basically. So it was my PhD thesis theme. So my group uh, was working with the different classes of regulatory peptides and uh, specifically with the peptides from the milk proteins. And our initial interest was how they can help to regulate mother-to-child interaction. And it turned out that they can be one of their major regulators of this emotional component. Then my friends who became my co-founders eventually and I, we thought that we can uh, basically isolate uh, those peptides and uh, make their food for newborns more similar to their natural breast milk. So that was like the core idea of the lactocore since the beginning, but a couple of years later, we saw a niche for regulatory peptides actually wide open. So they can regulate a lot of the processes in, for example, nervous system and metabolism. And uh, we actually decided to switch to more pharmacological approach and uh, we started to search for novel peptides and we used a different uh, techniques for example we used a hydrolysis which are kind of digestion process 
And then we analyzed hydrolysate that we were receiving and uh, we were identifying novel and interesting molecules inside of these blends. And um, to do so much more efficient and uh, in general better, we also implemented a proprietary IT technology. This is a physics-based process which helps us to understand which peptides have the biggest potential to become a novel drug candidate someday. So in 2018, uh, we created a company and we started a development as a biotech startup. And so what work have you been doing on milk to date? So, as I said, initially, we worked with the milk hydrolysates, and we're trying to find something inside uh, milk proteins. So, we use a different uh, techniques to digest those milk proteins and receive a short regulatory peptide out of it. And we basically have created uh, several different hydrolysates, and uh, then we uh, started testing in vitro and in vivo in order to understand what are possible effects and mechanism of action and so on. And pretty soon we discovered that we can isolate single molecules, single peptides, and we can easily synthesize them. So right now we don't bond to the milk hydrolysates. We can actually synthesize those short peptides and test them as individual compounds. So right now, our workflow started with this IT platform uh, called Reptide, which actually we used to identify and uh, create uh, the novel short peptides. And then we test different targets, different mechanisms, different activities of the peptides. So uh, like initial peptides and they are originated from milk and they are our leading compounds right now. We have uh, several of them and uh, we have like two major pipelines, one in uh, mental health and one in metabolic. What kind of studies have been done on the positive effects of these therapeutic agents and mm-hmm. with with the mental disorders and the type 2 diabetes? Yes, yeah, so we are still at the preclinical stage. Uh, this basically means that all our data on the efficacy and safety of the compounds are from different animal models. So for the initial steps of the screening, when we have a lot of different uh, peptides, and its modifications, we use uh, very often fish models, for example, zebrafish, Daniel Rero, because they are uh, very well suited for this initial stage of screening because uh, we can test a lot of compounds in very short time and very cost uh, effective. But the next step is always more complicated and more translatable models in rodents, in both in mice and rats. For example, for the, our mental health candidate named LCG17, 
we have already done a very comprehensive suite of different animal models of stress. It was both an acute and chronic stress. And also we did some very specific models, for example, for post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, right now we know for sure that the spectrum of activity of this particular peptide is very wide. So we hope to implement it in anxiety disorders and uh, depressive disorders. And the, I would say the main model for our metabolic candidate is different interventions into diet of animals, so basically what they eat. And we uh, use two main models, one with the high sucrose and one with the high fat diet. So basically we try to make a model of obesity or and type 2 diabetes. And uh, then we use our peptide as a treatment, mostly chronically. And for our metabolic candidate named CHM273, we saw very positive effects on blood glucose levels, but also it has a central component of its activity, meaning that it can uh, regulate the appetite. And this is uh, very important and most likely the key for normalizing the eating behavior and the metabolism of the patients in general. And what's the mechanism in the body? How does it actually work? That's a very interesting question. So obviously, this is an ongoing study because for most of the active and even registered drugs, there are numerous of studies to understand how they specifically work. So for the LCG-17, we discovered that it can trigger specific subunit, which is a part of the voltage-gated calcium channels. So it can regulate the calcium influx. And uh, through these mechanisms, it can regulate the inhibition and excitation balance in uh, nervous system and also it can modulate how neurons conduct signals from one to another so uh, it basically called the long term potentiation and uh, this is a very common mechanisms for antidepressants and anxiety drugs and uh, also we have a piece of the data that it can decrease the neuroinflammation. And the neuroinflammation nowadays considers one of the uh, most important pathological mechanisms of many psychological and psychiatric disorders. So for our metabolic candidate, we actually, based on its activity profile, we think that it can trigger its targets both peripherally and centrally. And um, it's a unique feature because, for example, for many standard of care, the only one or second component of uh, its action. And from this perspective, 
for example, in nervous system at least, it can trigger the crucial pathways into neurons, into hypothalamus, which are basically we use to control appetite, food behavior, drinking behavior, and so on. And from many biomarkers, we know that its mode of action is similar to different neuropeptides, endogenous neuropeptides, for example, for the neuropeptide S. And also, it has some similarities with the standard of care, for example, GLP-1 agonists. So, as I said, this is a long, very like uh, uh, hardcore scientific process. But since we work with the like single molecules and not hydrolysates, it is very important for us and for our potential collaborators and partners that we are trying to understand the whole chain of events that triggered by our peptides. What stage are you at now? I mean, when do you anticipate treatment will become available? As I said, we're the preclinical stage. So uh, we're in the middle of CMC, which is a manufacturing process, and the GLP toxicology uh, studies. So we have initiated them, and it will take us I think one and a half to two years to finish them and apply for innovative uh, novel drug application for the regulators such as FDA or an EMA. And then obviously every drug should um, complete the process of uh, all the stages of clinical trials. And um, basically for a startup company like we are, we plan to perform phase one studies, uh, which is a safety studies and healthy volunteers. And phase two studies, when you measure some endpoints in real patient population. And after that, basically, it's an IPO or MA event for a company uh, like, like ours. And usually uh, it takes several years to conduct those studies. In our development plan, it will take us five years to make all those studies I mentioned. And then hopefully we will be able to make a deal with the big pharma company and this partner will conduct the phase three of clinical trials, which are uh, necessary for registration. So hopefully it'll take uh, us around seven or eight years from this uh, moment to the moment that actual uh, patient can receive a drug from medical organizations. And so where are you at now? I mean, what, what further studies do you still have to do in that period of time before you launch? Our like current financial situation is that we were very fortunate with one of our co-founders, Mr. Uh, Gennady Babkin, who also became our first seed round investor. And we have already spent around $3 million for this basic scientific work and initial stages of the research and development. And uh, 
he already connected 3.5 million more. So we are looking for the seed round extension and we're looking for amount to about 5.5 million to complete this preclinical uh, stage. And uh, as I said, it will take us around one and a half to two years. And uh, also we are open to any negotiations of their like both seed and series in A investment because phase one, which we can uh, like complete using series A money is a very important milestone for any biotech startup because it basically proves that your drug is safe for human beings and you can measure it in different bodily fluids, you can detect it, you can understand its bioavailability, its many different characteristics. So right now we estimate the Series A round, uh, something around 20 to $25 million. And uh, basically we are constantly fundraising as a startup company. It's like part of the everyday process so we are very welcome any investors uh, right now all right that's a really good overview is there anything else that you wanted to cover that we didn't so i was mostly speaking about our two existing candidates so i think that it's important and it's an interesting topic to highlight our two projects in uh more like early stages of development so first of all, as I said, we're working on our proprietary IT tech and we hope that we uh, will be able not only use it for our own uh, like purposes to extend our pipeline and portfolio, but also we can help other drug developers and pharma companies to identify and create novel peptides because this is a pretty unique physics-based approach with the ai features and this is totally new to the r&d market of the peptides so right now we have already implemented this technology to existing candidates and we're working on new targets so i hope during this year we will launch its product as a, a like big part of the electrical group and also utilizing this reptile approach and our experience in uh, working with the peptides, we are thinking of a new niche, and this is a cognitive health and healthy longevity. So right now we are working on a very interesting peptides who can basically mimic the effect of their physical activity or the physical training on your brain, because basically when you are exercising like fitness or something like that, in your muscles uh, generate regulatory peptides as well, and they can answer your nervous system, your brain, and they modulate a lot of the processes uh, there. I hope that we will be able to create uh, novel peptides with the better pharmacological characteristics, which can do the same. 
and uh, potentially it can be one of the ways to like expand uh, healthy years and to become a support for everybody who wants to like be more active in their elderly age. Every couple of years, I go to the Cial trade show in Paris, and there's always a great variety of companies there from around the world. Well, Cial is going stateside. Trade show organizers Emerald and Questex are staging Las Vegas Food and Beverage Industry Week in March. It's a new event with four food shows under one roof. It includes Cial America, Bar and Restaurant Expo, Pizza Expo, and the World Tea Conference and Expo. To tell us more about Seattle America is Colleen Truman, VP of Global Food Group. What was the reasoning behind having a Seattle event in the U.S.? Sure. So we really, with Comexposium, had been talking to them and realized there was a gap in the market for a food show that really united the entire food and beverage industry. A lot of the food shows currently are really niche. And we really wanted to reach out to the entire community. So we connect, you know, all the key food and beverage categories. And then we want to make sure that we're, you know, underscoring that it's a, you know, it's an increasing importance to create a single event where everybody can come and see all the categories as well as meet up with key importers, you know, food service company, distributors, retailers, wholesalers, and have one place to meet during the year within the U.S. because that doesn't exist currently. For sure. And I guess while you were mentioning that, it, it makes you think that it makes total sense because the categories are much more blurred than they ever were, with, especially with plant-based, as in so many different categories as well. That is right. And it's really the plant-based has become mainstream. You know, it's not just dairy alternatives anymore. It really is across dairy, meat, even you think of you know, different type of the way we carry food. So from containers. So really it's it's a whole host of different types of alternatives than what you would traditionally see and have at food shows. Is there a focus for the show in the U.S.? I would say because it, there's not a strict focus. If you look at the Seattle network of their global brands across the world, really what they focus on is innovation and trends throughout all food and beverage categories. So it's really about key innovation, what's coming, not necessarily next year, but in the next five years, 10 years. And that's really where you'll see our highlights among the trends and what's happening in the industry from our conference sessions as well. So it really isn't one key theme. It's more about the overall where the food and beverage industry is going as a whole over the next five, 10 years. And what kind of things should people expect to see at Seattle America? Yeah, so really it'll, you know, bring unique offerings to the U.S. You know, like I said, it's a comprehensive display of all the key food and beverage categories from around the world with that focus on the CL excellence and inspiration that you would see globally from all CL events. So it really is uniting that entire food community, like I said, and showcasing products and services. And again, it's bringing not only importers, but food service companies, distributors, retailers, and wholesalers all together to do business. 
And other than all of the exhibitors, because I know it's an absolutely huge venue, are there any other sort of programs, highlights, like educational programs, seminars, that kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. We will have multiple conferences and sessions that are moderated by industry thought leaders. So just a few titles that we have are Vegan Made Easy, Selling Beef and Dairy in a Plant-Based World, which is, like we just said, a huge trend, Future of Organics, Innovations in the Protein Aisle, and much more as far as that's concerned. We also will have a noted keynote speaker, which is her name is Donatella Arpaia. And she's a Food Network star, Iron Chef judge. She'll be discussing how she started her pizza brand and then include tips on writing business plan, finding the right investors to back a concept, plus more insights on the food and beverage industry as a whole. But it really is bringing it down to the nitty gritty as well. So we're excited to have her at the show and being our keynote speaker. Obviously, it's not right upon us yet because it's in March, but how many exhibitors and visitors are you anticipating? Sure. So for exhibitors, you know, we're really finalizing the, our exhibitor information now since we are about five weeks out, but we expect to host close to about 200 domestic and international exhibitors. So today, you know, just a couple of examples of our domestic would be big names like Butterball, Stonewall Kitchen, Touch Dope Pistachio Company, Star Snacks, USA Rice, just to name a few. And then also working with our international CL team, we have several countries that have dedicated booths. A few examples would be Turkey, Tunisia, Argentina, Morocco, Brazil, Poland, France, and Canada. And so they'll be featuring a variety of vendors from their home countries. So that's really exciting as well. With it being the inaugural Seattle America, how are you, is there awareness of it already and how will you get spreading the word? Sure. There is great awareness because Seattle globally has been around and have shows all over the world for 20 years. So the brand is known for excellence in innovation and cutting edge. So the brand is very well known. And then we've been doing individual outreach, working with associations and different partners to get the word out about the launch of the show in Las Vegas this year. And for anybody that's listening to this, what are the details of the show, like the the dates and times and how to get tickets, COVID measures, those kind of things? Yeah, absolutely. So Seattle America will take place. It starts on Tuesday, March 22nd. And it runs through Thursday, March 24th. It's in the new beautiful West Hall of the Las Vegas Convention Center. Each day the show opens at 10 a.m. The keynote speakers do start a little bit earlier at, I believe it's 8.30 or 9 a.m. each day. And then uh, close a show happens 3 o'clock on that Thursday, March 24th. To register and to get tickets and to find out more information, everybody can go to clamerica.com. You can click on attend and there'll be registration and pricing there. You can also look at the conference schedule and examples of looking at who will be there as well. So lots of information on that page. As far as any COVID measures, we're, of course, complying with all applicable CDC state and local guidelines. And we'll be following along with the recommendations, the state of Nevada and the local guidance and any restrictions that they have. So just keep going back to our website and that will be updated as we get closer to the show. Um, You mentioned plant-based and how big it's become, and it's one of the focuses of the show. What do you see as the long-term future of plant-based? We know that plant-based over the years have been growing, and we're seeing that that's here to stay. 
global retail sales is expected to reach over $160 billion by 2030. And 2030 is not that far off. You know, that's only eight years away. So it's growing exponentially. The two biggest categories are milk and dairy. And then, of course, meat alternatives. So anything kind of replacing your traditional protein. And those are expected to dominate, you know, sales in the years to come. It would appear from the statistics that more than 70% of people have tried plant-based, but from that or extrapolating from that, how many make repeat purchases or how many are switching diet entirely? Yeah, so that's a great question. So really where the plant-based industry really trends started, if you think about it, is that plant-based alternatives really have been around meat as growth from shoppers looking to occasionally swap out their meat proteins with something perceived to be, you know, a healthier choice. It's called a flexitarian diet, which is primarily vegetarian, but occasionally, you know, introduction of meat and fish. It's really a bigger and growing segment in the population. And if you think, you know, it started to trend the last couple of years of meatless Mondays. So swapping out, you know, your traditional meat protein with maybe salad, lentils, fish, um, one day a week, you know, as that has gained in popularity, you know, improved taste with plant-based has helped in wider availability as you're walking down the grocery store aisles. And then of course, as pricing gets more comparable to your traditional meat, more people will be able to switch to a, you know, instead of just one day a week, maybe a couple days a week of more of a plant-based diet. So we'll see that trend you know, people switching one day and then over the years, maybe two days and then kind of switching in and out. So just having the alternatives in the grocery store aisle, more people will be able to have access to that type of diet and different food choices. And what do you think that the some of the barriers are to people making that switch? I, I was reading that more people would switch to a plant based diet were it not for the disparity in things like cheese. Yeah, I I think that's absolutely right. So what we've seen is that between raw materials and manufactured good and supply chain, as those things improve, the industry will be able to scale. So in the past, it would be hard to forecast and hard to get the correct raw materials. You know, the supply lines would be a barrier to entry for companies trying to get in. So as that scaling increase, as forecasting increases, as more people convert to a plant-based diet, production volumes will increase, which that will lend itself to over the years, uh, next couple of years especially, help lower cost and shrink that price gap with conventional proteins, which will aid in more people being able to adapt that plant-based lifestyle. So instead of having to go to maybe a farmer's market or a very specialty store that may be price prohibitive for a lot of people, you'll be able to walk down your regular grocery store aisle and have more choices. So again, as raw materials and supply improves, that scale will be improved. So more people throughout the U.S. will be able to have access to those goods and services at a reasonable price. And so what do plant-based producers need to do to be able to increase the market share. I know it's growing massively, but it still kind of lags behind meat and dairy. It does. And I think exactly what we talked about as farm as more of the small growers, suppliers of the plant base are able to get, you know, more of the supplies and the material. And it really is about forecasting the demand. 
So as the demand grows, they'll be able to scale a little bit better, which will just help by, you know, as you think of when you can buy in bulk and quantities, that cost will just go down as the consistency of what people want and need grow. And then also right now you see meat prices going up. So it'll also, that was where the price disparage will come together is as meat prices go up, there are alternatives that are plant-based that'll be, you know, will shrink that cost and then bring it to market faster. So again, it'll be a couple different things that have to happen. So raw materials and then as supply improves, that will just help to scale for, you know, the producers to get their goods to market, not only faster, but in a in a larger scale. So then they can have it in regular grocery stores that people have more access to every day than your gourmet stores. Are you seeing a lot of the companies that would traditionally produce animal-based products moving into plant-based? And do you see eventually that some of those big meat and dairy producers will have an even bigger portfolio of dairy products or sorry dairy free products you do see that right now a lot of it is because of that demand in goods right as consumers become more conscious not only about their own health and that of their families but also sustainability issues right how is your food getting to market what does that look like so the sustainability and environmental effects of traditional, the way we traditionally bring, you know, meat in your traditional proteins to market. So people are becoming more conscious about that. So I do think the demand from consumers will both lend itself to different practices from those large companies, but also will have them branch out into other goods and service that would be non-traditional. So more of your plant-based dairy. So you'll see a lot of it will depend on you know, the capability of, you know, you think of retooling an operation for different types of products than your traditional. But we are seeing that in the market where some companies are choosing to introduce alternatives from what they used to, to because they see the trends and they see the difference of innovation that's moving very fast. And larger companies are able to invest in that a little bit easier, I would say, than your small mom and pops. Are you seeing any different trends in the plant-based area. We've had this massive proliferation of products, but now that it's all there, people are getting pickier. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And it's really good to see because that's how products do improve, right? And it's that competitive nature of business to bring the best product to market for consumers, whether it be based on taste, price, or any, like you said, the sustainability of how the product got to market. But we're absolutely, like you were just saying, plant-based ice cream, cream cheese, sour cream, butter, cheese, and, and just cheese in general have come a long way. And you'll even see in the potato chip aisle, you walk down the potato chip aisle and you'll, you know, now you see all the potato chips that are made from chickpeas or, you know, seaweed snacks have gotten big. So yes, anything outside of the traditional is really growing. And you think of it traditionally on the outside aisles of the grocery store, but as you're walking through, you know, just the regular kind of aisles, whether it's, like I said, in the chip aisle or the cookie aisle, or maybe even the baking, you'll see a lot of different alternatives that are available for people who are vegan or, you know, if they are that flexitarian lifestyle, just so they have more choices, we'll see that product, you know, those product and services grow for sure. What's prompting that? 
people to pick those kind of things up, do you think? Is it just because of the sustainability? Because there's, there's just so much out there. I wonder how, if you're vegan, then clearly you pick some of those products up. But I wonder what the motivation is for people to try something like, you mentioned the seaweed snacks, when they might seem like they're a little bit out there. Well, it's really interesting. So I personally have a 15-year-old and she spends a lot of time on TikTok. And if you walk into, for example, a Trader Joe's like we did last night, there's a whole section in Trader Joe's that is labeled TikTok. And it's all these alternative chips and dumplings. And so it really is consumer trends and social media. And and that goes, I think, as the younger generations are thinking about sustainability issues as you're thinking about, you know, not only, you know, pricing, but sustainability, what are my products, you know, made from, how are they made, what's in my food, can I, you know, a big thing is flipping it over, reading the label, can I pronounce half the words, do I know what they mean, so I think it's just a trend in general, and the world has become very small, so it's very easy to see what's happening, and finding out that information of how food is made, and then going to the store and picking it up, because it is front and center, you know, on everybody's phones or on social media. But I do think it's trends of interest for the younger generation. And then for the parents of those kids of really thinking, okay, we want to make sure we're putting good, healthy food in our body and being aware of what's in those chips or, you know, whatever you're eating. I think one of the trends that was mentioned last year was sort of like traveling through food and trying new flavors and new tastes. Is that still a trend or... I think you do see those. What what I'm seeing more of for trends online is alternatives as far as what is like from the snack aisles as well. So people are very aware of plant-based cheeses and the proteins and milk and dairy that have been around for a while, especially the dairy. That really was the leading for plant-based alternatives. But now it is kind of outside that. So what else are you eating? What are your side dishes? It's not only the main dish of replacing meat, but what else are you eating as well? Are there any other trends that you're seeing right now? I think those are the main ones really is just consumers continually researching and they're really stating their opinions with their pocketbooks and where they go. So in it, in the world moves so fast and the consumers are more demanding than ever, which is not a bad thing, right? It's going to continually drive the market for both sustainability and what's best for the health of individuals of what we're putting in our body. Another interesting conversation there as well. And I was a little amazed to find out that Trader Joe's has a TikTok section. I'm feeling a bit behind the times. As anyone who listens to the podcast frequently will know, I love music. And I just put out a new album, but that's beside the point. I subscribe to a lot of record company newsletters. And it's getting to the point where they can send news of 20 new releases, and I won't know any of the artists. Maybe not set in my ways exactly, but definitely set in my genres. All right, now it's back to Europe for Charlie Highland from Stone X, who is back in Ireland after Gulf Food and he can give us the weekly updates on what's happening in the global dairy market. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Jim. Uh, when we spoke last week, we were at the Gulf Food Fair in Dubai, and um, we were mentioning that the sentiment was quite bullish. Um, but as we got towards the end of the week, the markets did seem to stabilize uh, quite a bit. 
And in fact, it felt like there was perhaps some weakness coming back in, especially in some of the powders like skim milk powder. Um, but when we turn to this week, um, there, any of the data that has come out so far has again been pretty bullish. Um, the big number out this week was the January New Zealand milk collections, um, which were down 6.1% year on year. And that brings the season to date down about 3.8%, um, a little bit uh, worse than, than we had forecast um, and that most of the market were expecting. Uh, so the futures today have started to trade up already on the NZX as a result of this, or sorry, the SGX as a result of these numbers. But when we start looking a bit further forward, we expect for for February and, and March to have similar numbers down probably 6 to 7% uh, year on year. But the soil moisture conditions do seem to be improving in New Zealand. So there is um, hope that things uh, after that should start to get a little bit better. But so far, um, that side of the world seems to be really struggling and uh, will likely end the season somewhere between three and a half and four percent down. Um, also, some news that was out uh, in the last uh, day or so was in the US, uh, the cold storage stock reports, which again was considered quite bullish for the markets. Um, the butter stocks were down 33.3% roughly uh, year on year, which uh, headline looks quite quite extreme but we were expecting something similar um cheese was uh, stocks were up um year on year but only slightly up between one and three and a half percent depending on the cheese but in general the the, the report was considered bullish uh, for pricing and even then in europe today we've seen the quotations which are the pricing benchmarks that uh, come out every wednesday were released and, and most of them particularly the butter was up uh, stronger than expected uh, which rose 1.6% that was mostly due to a very high french butter price which came out and um, the market is a bit surprised by the number so we do expect it will be revised lower probably in the next week or two but in the meantime it's uh, it's uh, sparked a bit more buying interest this morning uh, skim milk powder and whey were also up a little less than one percent up about 0.8 percent in those weekly quotations um, so in general, uh, markets have been reasonably stable up until today, but today the, the moods feels a bit bullish again on the back of uh, these numbers. Thanks, Charlie. Glad you got back to Dublin safely, although lots of stormy weather in Ireland and the UK lately. We'll talk to you again next week. StoneX provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for another podcast. Number 171 is already in progress, with two interviews done already and another one today. It's a bit like all the events we talk about. No sooner are they done than it's time to start on the next one. I have to be a couple of podcasts ahead with interviews or all of a sudden you get to Tuesday and you don't have any. It's really not that different from newspapers and magazines, really. The forecast for the weekend is fine for a change, so it may, hopefully, mean getting a new walk-in and not getting drenched, which will be a welcome change, and perhaps the dog won't hate me so much. I don't think he really cares, actually, either way, as long as there's something to sniff and something inappropriate to try and eat. Speaking of eating, it's lunchtime, and there are limited options, so it's time to go and try and get kind of creative. So I hope wherever in the world you may be that you have a great week, take care and stay safe, and as always, thanks for listening.